Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and we'd like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta land. And we're asking you to influence your local politicians with the message that we really need to change our energy policies and move to renewable energy sources to mitigate the effects of climate change. And each month, we love bringing you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, our friend, molecular pharmacologist, toxicologist and amateur astronomer, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, brings you his monthly sky guide with all the essential observational highlights for telescopers, astrophotographers and naked eye observers. Each month, Ian also includes Ian's Tangent, where he takes us on a short journey of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we bring you an exclusive and in-depth interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, particle physicist, radio telescope engineer, data scientist or space scientist. So right now we're going to zoom through 14 time zones to Cambridge, Massachusetts to speak with a fabulous astrophysicist working at Chandra X-ray Centre at the famous Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. So let's talk now with Dr. Rodolfo Montes Jr. He's better known as Rudy. Hello, Rudy. Hello, Brendan. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Rodolfo Montes Jr. And Rudy is an astrophysicist working at Achandra X-ray Center at the famous Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And he has wide research interests. And among them, he does amazing work using NASA's flagship X-ray telescope, their space telescope, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, to research some of the hottest and most powerful regions of our universe. And he's also known for his mentoring and championing of undergraduates from underrepresented backgrounds. And he recently presented at the American Astronomical Society's High Energy Astrophysics Division meeting in Hawaii. And he's back now on his home base. Thanks for speaking with us today, Rudy. Thanks for having me, Brendan. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you very much. Okay, so before we look at your fabulous research and your current work at the Chandra X-ray Centre, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Rudy, and where your passion for science and astronomy came from? Great. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I grew up in South Texas, in San Antonio, Texas, to be more precise. My family is from South Texas. I grew up in San Antonio, and I spent most of my life there very early on. And my interest in science kind of started then, but there's an interesting story there, but kind of started there. Mostly I was really into nature, and I was very into animals and our backyard would flood sometimes and there would be a whole swarm of tadpoles swimming around in the flooded area of our backyard and I would go and hang out with the tadpoles and then I'd like to watch them evolve and then 
change into their little frogling forms and then hop out of the water and go off into wherever they went to disappear to. I also had a couple of pet turtles growing up and I also would capture lizards and geckos and creatures like that from people's houses with some of the neighborhood kids and we'd like charge a quarter to get them out of their people's houses. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, thanks. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions and how those ambitions might have evolved over time. Yeah, so I, I was a pretty accelerated student in the Gifted and Talented program here in the U.S., which is a small group of students that are, I guess, high-performing by some metric that I don't know the exact standards of. And I was always surprised that I was a part of that group. And I had a twin sister and she was not in that group. And so I was accelerating through my classes, almost every physics and math course that was offered by my high school. They didn't have very much in the way of advanced placement courses. So I, I was pretty much done with all of the classes I could take before my junior year was finished. And so I had an option to graduate early or to continue and stay the course. And my parents, because we're twins, they were like, we want you both to graduate at the same time. So, so I stuck there and I asked my high school counselor what I should do. And that's where there was an, this interesting turn of events. Um, I told, he asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I wanted to be a scientist. And he, he laughed and he said, you'll never get a job doing that. So I was like, really? Well, okay, well, what should I do? I mean, I'm a very impressionable young person, young adult at this time. And I was shocked to hear this. So I said, what do I do? And he said, well, you're really good at math. So you should, maybe you should consider going into accounting and becoming an accountant. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I have like a year and a half to just take whatever I want to take because I finished all the physics and chemistry and chem, um, science classes and math classes. So let me just figure out some business courses. And I did that. And then I applied to, to college to do accounting. Wow. Okay. But then the change came. After that successful, obvious, and fast-tracked school career, you went on to do two undergrad degrees at University of Texas at Austin and First, you did your Bachelor of Arts in Astronomy degree, then your Bachelor of Science in Physics degree, and then you moved a couple of thousand kilometres up to the Rochester Institute of Technology for your PhD, where you were researching X-ray emissions from planetary nebulae using the Chandra and XMM-Newton X-ray observatories. Now, what made you, Rudy, what made you decide on RIT? for your doctorate back then? That's another long story <laughs> that uh, I'll summarize by saying I did not choose RIT as my PhD program. I was actually in, admitted to the University of Rochester, which is a short distance from RIT. And I was there for maybe about two, two and a half years, taking coursework and one summer, I met one of the professors at RIT, and he was interested in having a student work with him on x-ray data. And I was like, I've never touched x-ray data in my life. I, that sounds really interesting. Sure, let's do it. And I worked with him, and 
I've made some discoveries with that data and that really surprised him and excited him. And he was very enthusiastic about trying to reel me into their program, which did not exist at the time, <laughs> but he was uh, pretty insistent and said, if you come to our school, we will start the program and you'll be the first. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Let's roll the dice and take a chance on that. And we did. And I came out as the first PhD from the astrophysics program at Rochester Institute of Technology. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Rudy, you're pulling knowledge out of raw data there. That is beautiful science. Look, I'm going to ask you specifically about the Chandra Observatory soon, but could you start by introducing our listeners to planetary nebulae? What are they and how and why do planetary nebulae emit such high-energy light in the form of X-rays? Yeah, planetary nebulae are the late stages in the life of the star and really the death of the star of a star like our sun. What happens for most of the life of a star like our sun is that they're very ordinary and happy, uh, more or less, which means that they're in, in what we call hydrostatic equilibrium, which means that the pressure from the nuclear furnace in the core is balanced by the gravity that wants to collapse the star. Yep. And those two forces are in a tug of war, and they're in a steady tug of war for most of the life. And so the star is just putting out a relatively steady amount of light into space. And that's the light that reaches our Earth, and that's the light that uh, helps our, our planet have a very habitable uh, environment. What happens when, when things start to go haywire in the core? So in the core, you're burning hydrogen and you're turning that into helium, and that's just growing in the core. And eventually you don't have enough hydrogen in the core, and so you can't produce the same amount of energy to push against gravity. And so the tug of war starts to turn towards gravity's favor, and then that causes the star to contract in the core especially. And that contraction in the core is going to increase the pressure and that's going to increase the temperature and it increases the temperature to the point where you can actually ignite and burn the helium that's in the core, which you couldn't do before. It wasn't hot enough to do that. That then causes the whole thing to put out incredible amount of light and it starts to blow the star stellar material away from the star. So in the outer parts, you're starting to lose that gravity is starting to lose that battle and the star just starts to swell into what we call a red giant. And all of that red giant material is out there around that hot core that's still burning and also contracting still. And that causes the outer layers to flow away from the star and they they don't flow very fast, about 35 kilometers per second. But something happens in that process in the core it's still contracting, it's still getting hotter, and something, and we don't exactly know what, launches a very high-velocity wind, something on the order of a 1,000 kilometers per second, and that rams into that slowly moving wind, and it sculpts it, it kind of snow plows it into these shells, and that shell becomes ionized or illuminated by that star in the middle that's still there hot, And that is what causes the planetary nebula to be born and visible to us with our optical telescopes. That's how they emit 
opticalite. <laughs> and that's what they're primarily known as, as very beautiful and iconic imagery. They're usually adorning album covers and people use them in posters and promotional materials all the time because they're so spectacular yep. and so colorful. But what happens in that collision, well, I said you have this really fast wind colliding with that slower wind, that collision creates a shock. And a shock is essentially a sudden rise in the density of an environment that causes the thermodynamics of that environment to, to just get really weird. And what happens is the temperature just goes very high inside of the, that shell. Not, not on the shell, the shell is, is, is pretty warm, but the inside of the shell is very warm. And it's so warm that it emits X-ray emission. And that's the X-ray emission that I mostly study from planetary nebula, but the stars themselves are also sources of X-ray emission that I discovered in 2010 and suggest is caused by the stars themselves that are at the center of that nebula. Fantastic. Uh, that's a beautiful explanation. Thanks, Rudy. Okay, well, this brings us right to where we want to be, where with Chandra. An absolutely wonderful instrument orbiting Earth at an altitude of 140,000 kilometres. And it's been up there for almost 24 years now. And your home base is the Chandra X-ray Centre at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that's where you operate the satellite. You process the data and you distribute it to scientists all around the world for analysis. Now, for our new listeners, could you give us a very basic outline of how Chandra's instruments enable us to see these invisible X-rays? I'd love to do that. So that's right. We operate here at the Center for Astrophysics in the Chandra X-ray Center, and it's a very large group of people. Uh, we have people who essentially plan what observations we're going to study, and they have to do that through a delicate balance of the spacecraft conditions on the spacecraft because it's in space and it does go about a third of the way to the moon, which is quite far for a satellite. Um, for, for comparison, the Hubble Space Telescope is very close to the Earth. It's in what we call low Earth orbit. It's not very far, and that's why it was serviceable by the uh, shuttle program when we had a shuttle program. Uh, Chandra is not serviceable because it goes on this very elliptical orbit. And the reason it does that very elliptical orbit is because of the amount of observing time that Chandra can have. So around our Earth, we have these radiation belts and they're caused by the magnetic field of the Earth. And in that magnetic field, there's particles that are just accelerated and sped up and some of them go to the poles, and that's what creates the aurora that we see. And then the rest of them make these radiation belts. When, when the satellite is in those radiation belts, we cannot observe because the background of those particles are just bombarding everything. And so it's very difficult to do observations from that spot. Yep. So that's the short part of the orbit. The long part of the orbit, where we spend most of the time, is further away from those radiation belts. And it's about, a, like I said, a third of the way to the moon. And it completes that orbit every two and a half days. That is when we do most of our observing. And how do we do? We First, those radiation belts are difficult for detectors. 
but in addition to that, the Earth's magnetic field and our atmosphere are all playing a role in preventing the X-rays from reaching the ground here on Earth. And that's good for us because we don't want to be bombarded constantly by celestial X-ray sources. And so we have to go above those interferences in order to uh, study the X-rays. So once we're up there, we have to use our instruments. And Chandra is a marvel, an engineering marvel. It's quite amazing. It has, so if you think about most telescopes, they use mirrors and you can look at a mirror and a telescope and it'll have a convex or concave shape. That concave shape is there to focus the light. And so the light comes in and it gets focused to a point. And then at that focus, you put another mirror and that reflects it to your detector. And then that's where you detect the light. You can't do that with x-rays because the x-rays are very energetic and they will just be absorbed by the mirror and not reflected. And so to actually deflect and focus a mirror, you have to do what's called grazing incidence. And it's a lot like if you're at a pond and you want to skip a rock. You can't throw the rock down at the water. You have to throw it at a very low angle. And as it glides along the air, it hits the surface and skims and then bounces. That's what we're doing with the X-ray photons from space. We're bouncing them off of these mirrors. So instead of having a flat or a mirror that ends at a surface, we just have a shell. And that shell is where the photons are interacting, deflecting, and then heading all the way down to the back of the spacecraft where we have detectors to collect the light. The light that we detect are X-ray photons, individual X-ray photons to be precise. Wow. And those, those individual X-ray photons will collide with the detector material. And that collision will deposit the energy into the substrate, which is mostly a silicon oxygen uh, substrate that will liberate a certain number of electrons. And then we count them. <laughs> we yep. count them very quickly before, before uh, we, another photon comes in. And then that tells the number of electrons that we measure is proportional to the energy that the photon had. And so by doing that, we get when the photon came, the energy the photon had, and the position in the sky that the photon came from. And that X-ray information allows us to put together a variety of data products like images that you've probably seen, spectra, which is where we disperse the photon by energy so we can determine what energy photons we're detecting. And that tells us the physics behind what's going on in, in these objects. And then we can also produce light curves, which tells us how stars might vary as a function of time. Wow, that is extraordinary science. That's beautiful, Rudy. Thank you so much. Awesome. Okay, look, let's just go back a little now, back to your thesis. Uh, X-ray emission from planetary nebula, unveiling wind collisions and binarity. You use data from both NASA's Chandra X-ray telescope and NASA's XMM Newton X-ray satellite. And both of them were launched in 1999, but both are beautiful achievements. But Chandra seems to have a lot of the public recognition. Do both these observatories enable the same 
types of high energy research or do they have different capabilities, Rudy? It's kind of an interesting time to be alive in 1999 when both of these spacecrafts were launched. Um, like you said, one of them is NASA, so it's a U.S.-led mission. The other one is ESA, the European Space Agency. So that's a European-led consortium of European countries. And they're both X-ray telescopes with that use very similar technology. So this technology where we focus the, the photons through these shells of mirrors and then focus them to the detectors where we detect the photons. The main difference between these two telescopes, and there's not a lot of differences between the two, actually, but the main difference is that XMM is a multiple mirror telescope, so it actually has three telescopes that are X-ray focusing, and it has three detectors as well, and it also has an optical ultraviolet telescope on it. So it's kind of like a very broad workhorse for doing astronomy, not only in an X-ray, but also with optical and in ultraviolet. The big difference between these two comes down to spatial resolution. Chandra's X-ray mirrors are some of the most highly polished, smoothest surfaces that we've been able to make. They're coated with metals such that the surfaces are so smooth that there's barely any room for an X-ray photon to get misaligned on its deflected path. And they're made of glass, and they're so heavy that it's one of the heaviest payloads that the space shuttle program put into orbit. And that makes it have exquisite spatial resolution. There's no X-ray mission that has had the X-ray resolution that Chandra has, and there won't be for quite a bit of time. Even the current projected probe class missions or other missions that are being proposed for the you know 20 to 30 years from now, will not have the same spatial resolution that Chandra has had. It, it's a marvel of engineering that is very difficult to reproduce with the current climate of funding schemes for X-ray satellites. So that's the main difference. Chandra has this really great spatial resolution. It allows you to see details in the objects that you observe that a lot of people don't see an XMM. Sometimes you detect something in XMM for the first time and it has some extension. So you want to follow it up with Chandra so you can figure out exactly, just essentially put on the glasses so you can see everything in detail and really learn more about what's going on in those astrophysical objects. Ah, very nice teamwork. Now, just to follow up on that, you mentioned optical astronomy there. Recently, I was talking with our resident optical sky guide expert, Dr. Ian Musgrave, who tells us every month about good optical observations. And he mentioned to me the Hubble palette where different colors are assigned to different optical frequencies in the raw Hubble data to produce those stunning Hubble images that we all love. And what range of frequencies is the Chandra instrument sensitive to? And does Chandra data have a palette applied to it to create those beautiful Chandra images that anyone, and I'd recommend everyone does this, you can easily find all of those lovely Chandra images on the Harvard Chandra Image Library. Can you tell us about palettes, please? Yeah, this is an interesting question. 
this is not something that we've deliberately thought about as far as I know. And I, I, I was having a conversation about this today, actually, with some colleagues because we're coming up with new handouts and materials to give out at conferences that we attend and inter engage with the users and astronomers and the public as well. And we were wondering about this very topic. And I don't think we have an explicit, like prescribed palette that we follow for Chandra images, but I will remark that you'll often see purple and pinks and blues used throughout our images. Uh, and that's, that's mostly to put a contrast against. Usually when we take a Chandra image, there's sometimes a Hubble image of the same object. And so we combine these observations to show where the x-rays are compared to where the optical light is coming from. And purple and pink really show a strong contrast with those images that we're familiar from the Hubble Space Telescope. So I think that's what kind of what the palette that we use. And how we apply that palette is there's no one prescription that we use. There's no one rule that we follow. The frequencies that Chandra is sensitive to, I'm going to actually convert that to energy because I, <laughs> I honestly don't know what the frequencies are. I have to do the calculation myself. But we're sensitive to what, what X-ray astronomers call soft X-ray photons with a little bit of hard X-ray photons, but not very hard X-ray photons. And when, we, when I say soft and I say hard, we're talking about the energy of the photons if you have a soft photon, you have a lower energy photon. If you have a hard photon, you have a higher energy photon. Yep. And so typically what we do is we will parse out that range of, of energies. So we can go down to 0.3 kilo electron volts up to about 8 kilo electron volts with Chandra. And so we'll parse that out. We'll say, okay, 0 to 1, I want to give this color. 0 0.3 to 1 keV will give this color. Yep. 1 keV to 3 keV will give this other color. And then 3 keV to 8 keV will do another color. And I've given some arbitrary boundaries. You can parse that up. Because we detect the individual photons, we can parse that out however we want after the fact. And then we give a color to each of those, and that's how we produce these composite three-color, false-color X-ray images. Fantastic. Go and have a look at those images, folks. Okay, we'll get back to some of your hard science in a minute, but let's take a little diversion and look at some of your mentoring and teaching and outreach. Back in your journey, after your PhD at RIT, you stayed on for your first postdoc at Rochester, then you did another postdoc fellowship at Vanderbilt. Could you tell us a little about your work and your research at Vanderbilt and you also did some mentoring and teaching there? Yeah, that's right. My PhD was mostly working with what we call archival data. So data that someone's taken, and it's in the archive that these observatories store. And archival data means that, you know, somebody observed this target, let's say this pulsar wind nebula, and just off to the side of it was a planetary nebula. And they studied the Pulsar Wind Nebula and they wrote papers about it. And then I came along and said, oh, I want to publish this detection of this planetary nebula. And so most of my work was going through the archives, pulling all these serendipitous detections of sources or non-detections sometimes, 
And then just analyzing those and then writing papers about those and then proposing for new observations based on what I found in those. And that's what I did for my PhD. And that's what was my PhD was mostly focused on. And from my PhD, we built a large international collaboration that we called the Chandra Planetary Nebula Survey. And we proposed with Chandra to observe a lot more planetary nebula because at the time Chandra had only observed about five or six planetary nebulas. So we proposed to just grow that sample and we got up to about 65 objects before we wrapped up uh, the Chan Plans uh, project. And that was what I did when I was at Vanderbilt. I was working on the, the Chandra Planetary Nebula Survey, preparing that data, preparing papers with that data, and then publishing those papers. Doing additional stuff in addition to that, I also started working with asymptotic giant branch stars, which is the phase just before planetary nebula. And I got involved in a couple of projects with NOVI, which are these binary stars that throw material onto a very compact companion, and that companion then erupts with an explosion on its surface. Kind of like a planetary nebula, but a little bit faster and a little bit more energetic. So I was doing this at Vanderbilt, and I was also there as part of the FIS Vanderbilt Master's to PhD Bridge Program. This is a this is a nationally known program at Vanderbilt that has been the role model for a bunch of other programs that have started up. This program is mostly there to improve the PhD program experience. This program is particularly focused on supporting students from underrepresented backgrounds, but it's really a model for how to do a PhD program better than the current PhD program that we have in in the US. Uh, And so there I did a mentoring of those students and I did teach some courses, guest lectures mostly, and then also some annual Python boot camps with the incoming students. And that was a great time. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I also mentor some undergraduates in their research projects as well. Fantastic. It sounds like it all started because you had this excellent peripheral vision for interesting data. Okay, a strong feature of your outreach work is your mentoring and supporting students from underrepresented backgrounds. Would you like to tell us the what and the why of your outreach work? Yeah, this is something that started from noticing in myself that there were a lot of experiences that I had in my education where there was a lot of non-positive feedback, we'll call it, from from colleagues and from uh, fellow students and also from even from faculty in some institutions. Uh, And this affected my own well-being. And it affected my progress through my degree program, all even in undergrad and, and even into grad school. And when I got to Vanderbilt and I saw what they were doing and I experienced what they were doing and I was a part of what they were doing, I really saw the light, so to speak. And I said, this is what we should be doing for all the graduate programs. And if I had this experience in my undergraduate and graduate career, I would have advanced a lot quicker. I would have not experienced a lot of the, the, the things that I did experience that I did, did not have a good time with. And so that really drove me to, to always try to have a, have a stake in this. And I was always helping students before that. They weren't always from underrepresented backgrounds, but I was always helping students reach the next level. And I really enjoyed mentoring students, but this really put a little bit more formalism and understanding about the 
psychological and other things that were happening and let me uh, equip myself better to handle those and to help other students handle those. Thanks, Rudy. Now, right now, it might be good to ask how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your work. Um, None of us operate in a silo. We always hope that it's over, but it keeps on keeping on. It certainly is over here in Australia. What are your personal and professional reactions to the COVID-19 pandemic, Rudy? Thanks, Brendan. That's a good question. I mean, I was I was very concerned when it started, and and I was actually prior to emergency stay-at-home orders in Cambridge. I I already stopped going into the office and yeah. only going in for meetings whenever they were absolutely necessary. And I was just working from home actually before we actually were told to work from home um, outright. As I was concerned about it, I knew I heard about stories of it spreading quite quickly, and I was pretty pretty terrified about about it because of the high mortality rate of the COVID nineteen. And so I was starting to transition working from home. We got the official call to start working from home in in, in Massachusetts. Everyone was emergency stay at home orders, and so we fairly rapidly transitioned to working from home. Most of us are using computer systems that we can log into from anywhere with the appropriate security measures, of course. And we've had those in place for decades before before we needed them. And we were using them before pandemic occurred. And so we were able to transition to working from home quite quickly. That doesn't mean that it was easy working from home. I know many of my colleagues had full houses of several working people in the house all at the same time and that can be difficult and it can uh, hamper productivity for sure Uh, but for the most part we we continued operating and we never stopped operating the spacecraft uh, during the pandemic there was one instance where we had a, a safety mode which is when our spacecraft something goes wrong and and it goes into what we call safe mode and the first one that happened during the pandemic, these happen occasionally. They're not um, in the in the spacecraft events. They're just they're just events that happen because some sensor got tripped and it's an emergency. It's a precaution to put it into the safe mode so that there's no damage. When the first one happened during the pandemic, it was almost as if everyone was still in the room together. They didn't have to drive into the group meeting, they were all there right away. And so it actually sped up some of those reactions to events like that. Fantastic. Yeah, well, my family is still masking up in crowded indoor situations, so it keeps on keeping on. Now, look, let's have a quick look at your working week, please, Rudy. In addition to conducting original scientific research on evolved and dying stars. You're involved in multi-institutional collaborations that offer undergraduate and graduate students their research opportunities. Those students from underrepresented communities, you help convey technical information about, as you mentioned earlier, the Chandra spacecraft and its instruments to 
better inform the worldwide community of the users of that beautiful spacecraft you serve as lead editor of the Proposer's Observatory Guide, an official NASA document of the spacecraft's technical information, and you're also lead editor of the Chandra newsletter. And in addition, you organise scientific conferences and review panels to evaluate proposals from scientists that want to use the Chandra telescope. And that's an amazing workload, Rudy, on top of your research and your mentoring. Would you like to pass on to me in particular, about to our audience, any time management tips that you'd like to share? Thanks, Brandon. That yes, you describe a lot of my duties, and they were they were difficult. It was a very difficult load to to carry. Um, I've actually added more duties, but I've also handed off several of these duties to a new colleague of mine that we have working for us now at the at the Chandra X Ray Service at Chandra X Ray Center in in our group. That's been a relief, but I've picked up in place of all a lot of these duties, I picked up uh, both uh, mentoring the, these this younger group of scientists that are going to be in, working in our group and also running the entire peer review process, which is a, a very big project where we determine from the scientific community what we're going to observe with Chandra and what scientific discoveries we're going to make with our telescope in the future. But the main time management tip that I would share about all of this, especially when I was doing all of these simultaneously and also taking on, starting to take on the peer review lead, is to think long-term. You have to know your whole year, and you have to know when things need to get done by, and then you have to work backwards to figure out how to get them done by those dates. And that's the best thing that I found is helpful for doing this. And then I do make a daily to-do list. And that to-do list is at least three things that are going to get that thing to the next level so that it can get to that finish line. And if I do those three things, I'm super happy. And the rest of the time of my day, I will do extra stuff from that list or I will do something different like research and mentoring students. I'm always mentoring students, so it's never uh, there's never a pause on that, uh, spending even more time mentoring the student with that project. But that's my main tip is to parse things out, make sure that you can do them and then get help when you need it. For sure, absolutely get help uh, from your colleagues when you need it. Thank you very much, Rudy. Very wise words indeed. Now, let's look, we love science here and you've given us some beautiful science already. Let's go back to some and do another little bit of science. Can you bring us... Can you bring our listeners up to date with the nitty-gritty of your current work? Could you talk us through some details of a particular research or project problem that you're working on now that is driving you crazy or is astonishingly exciting, or perhaps it's even both? What's going on, Rudy? Yeah, that's this is a great thing to talk about. I'm really excited that you asked this question, Brendan. So I, I mentioned before that I tend to do a lot of work with the archival data. So data that's already been taken, already usually been published, and then finding some use of that data still. 
And that's actually the direction that I'm going again. Not because I can't compete for the observations, but because the Chandra sensitivity is actually declining with time for the objects that I study. You can, we can still do great science in all the other areas, but for my particular objects, it's becoming harder and harder to get the time because it requires so much more time now than it did early in the mission. So I've been looking at some of the older observations of these planetary nebulae, and I've been developing new techniques in order to analyze them even better. And in particular, the, the paper that I'm really close to submitting for publication that I'm very excited about is a paper that takes these photons that we detect individually and studies collections of them spread across the nebula in order to get extra information, not only about where the emission is, but also what type of emission and what the temperature or what the parameters, the physical parameters in a particular region are of that nebula and able to map out all of those physical properties that we can across the nebula. And I'm doing this through using the statistics of the photons that are detected and comparing those statistics to predictions from models of, of the statistics and then using that to build up a map of the physical conditions across the nebula. And that's something that we haven't been able to do because our objects that we study, the planetary nebula, are usually what we call photon-starved, which means that they don't have a lot of photons. And so if you can find a way to get extra information out of those photons, you can do new science. And that's what I'm really excited about right now. Wow, new knowledge from old data. Look, we could talk for hours about that because um, there's a current trend that when data comes in, we just grab part of it and then the rest, because there's petabytes of data coming down, a lot of it's being just thrown away. And so, but we haven't got time to talk about that. What are you recommending that we should watch out for in the near future, Rudy? What are you keeping your eye on? Oh, I'm really excited about discoveries that we're making in time domain astrophysics. So these events that suddenly happen, a telescope detects something raising in intensity, and then every other telescope follows it, and then everyone is looking at it, and then everyone is reporting out on what they're learning and seeing. Because we have so many observatories in space and on the ground that have the capability to just do automated scans of the sky and surveys of the sky, we're detecting more and more of these, and that's bringing a lot of new exciting physics and uh, phenomenon to our attention from the universe. And I think that's one of the more exciting areas. And it's only going to get even more exciting when projects like the Vera Rubin Telescope, which is down in Chile, uh, starts to operate, because that's going to scan the night sky uh, several times each night. And it's going to be fantastic and just going to be a deluge of data. <laughs> that we are going to be looking for these needles in the haystack, but there's still going to be also great stuff that you can do with the entire data set that I'm really excited about. Fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome, Rudy. Look, our time's almost up here. Well, it's time to say thank you so much, Dr. Rudy Rodolfo Montes. On behalf of all of our listeners, and especially from me, it's been really fabulous to be speaking with you. Thank you, especially for your time. 
you um, managed to donate this time for us. I really understand how difficult it must be to squeeze in all those demands. Listeners can find out more about Dr. Montez and his research at rudyphd.com or just put Harvard Chandra into your favourite search engine and Rudy and his research and the fabulous work that happens there will come up and do have a look at some of those images. Thank you so much for bringing some beautiful science front and centre and good luck with all your projects and those next adventures. Thank you so much, Dr. Rudy. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for having me. It's been excellent talking to you. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we always recommend that you check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website to find out what's up in the night sky. And in two weeks' time, at the start of the month, we'll be bringing you Ian's June Sky Guide. Radio Wave!